Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Now we have a choice here. We either sit and wait or we take these flare guns and do something really stupid. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to podcast. Whoa, <laughs> my brain is melting. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. Um, as always, I'm here with Connor. I guess you could say he's the uh, the rally to my Marshall Pentecost. And we are here to talk about Pacific Rim. How's it going, Connor? Hey, man. Uh, I'll be honest with you. My audio was like muting you during our show. It was a brilliant intro. So I assume you got the characters right in comparing us. But uh, that'll be a mystery for when I actually listen to the episode. Uh, fair enough. Yeah, I also, I, I started off sort of misspeaking too. I, I I said, welcome to podcast. It was very classy. <laughs> you know, it's funny because in our exclusive running later this week, Ryan Boyd refers to this as podcast picnic. So <laughs> maybe we've a been theme. using the wrong... Maybe we've used the wrong name this whole time. I think our, our pun might be too elaborate for people. I don't know. <laughs> Amazing. So, uh, uh, we're about to talk about uh, Pacific Rim. And I guess one question I have for you, Connor, is uh, why now? Like, uh, it sounds like this is a movie you've successfully avoided for some time. Well, first... There we go. So... Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because this is one of Twitter's favorite movies and has been for the better part of the decade because it's from 2013. It's considered, you know, one of the blockbusters from this century that it's cool to like, um, of which there are increasingly few, and especially in the 2010s, precious few, I think, movies that were, you know, clearly big budget studio like summer blockbusters that you're also like allowed to like in cool Twitter spaces. And this is perhaps at the top of the list. Um, how did I avoid it? I don't, I don't know. I think that I had written it off in my head as I years ago, as I don't care about Del Toro that much. I don't care about blockbusters that much. And at the time that this came out, I wasn't seeing very many movies in theaters. I think I might've been getting ready to go uh, live in the UK when this came out. I had a bunch of other things on my mind, but yeah, it's it's interesting to kind of like return to it in two thousand in twenty twenty, um, as I was searching around for easy, easily streamable movies. Once uh, I finished watching Friday Night Lights <laughs> all the way through, um, it's interesting just because like it has aged, I think, exceptionally well for a lot of reasons. And I, I would start by the just world's saying, ending. <laughs> well, I mean, that's you know, that's a common yeah, that's a common blockbuster like. That's the that's the uh, that's the the plot device that allows you to circumvent all of those finicky questions, which we'll get to that. But I think like I think mostly it's just aged incredibly well visually. The CGI in this movie looks so much better than like the CGI in Aquaman, which is from 2018. It looks better than the CGI in a ton of movies that have come out in just the last couple of years. So even though it's almost been a decade since it came out, it's just a very good looking movie. That's where I'd start with it. 
I think that's very interesting because we've we've talked a lot in the past about how uh, practical effects are are painfully neglected these days, and and CGI in general is crap. But I I think you're right. This is an example of a movie who who goes largely the CGI route and makes it visually interesting. Yeah, and that's kind of like that's where my case for this movie begins and I think ultimately ends is simply that there's an attention to detail here that is very, very rare in blockbuster movies. I think our good buddy Leslie, I, I, it's kind of seared into my mind that when he came on to discuss Event Horizon with us a while ago, over a year ago, he talked about sort of the art direction and the set design and just all of the visual details in Event Horizon. And he, he, I remember that he said, the boots in Event Horizon have more attention to detail put into them than like, you know, these vast sets in Marvel movies. And he's really onto something there. I think that is something that you see, like that's why we can still obsess over the surface aesthetics of like, you know, aliens or predator or Terminator. Like though the, the work that went into creating the just little details of those movies, we're still investigating years later. I think of how often you see those HR Geiger sets from the original alien pop up. And Pacific Rim is one of the few blockbusters in the 2010s where you could you could freeze frame it at various points and actually be interested in what's going on off to the sides. What are the little mechanical details of the robots? What are the little flourishes on the kaijus? What is going on with characters' costumes? And what we get increasingly with, with blockbusters now is it's so macro level and everything is sort of at this, as my, uh, my writing instructor would say, it's at this 10,000 foot level of detail where you're just looking down and it, it, they want things to look good as, as things progress and sort of a blur from room to room to again steal from Leslie. But I guess my point is with this one, I felt that throwback sense of like, ah, yeah, okay. I could actually be interested, come back to this movie over and over again and still be interested at just a basic visual level in what I'm seeing. And the only other blockbuster from the 2010s I could think of that I would say that about off the top of my head is probably Fury Road. Oh, interesting. I heard that as Fairy Road at first, and I'm like, oh my god, I have not seen that movie, and how am I going to fake my way through this discussion? But yes, I have seen Fury Road, and I agree, it is a good example of a modern film that uh, that goes the blockbuster route but doesn't neglect the details. And that sort of plugs into, I, I guess it's it's the, the uh, episode where I just ask you a bunch of questions, and that's fine. But uh, I... I'm in a weird position with this film because I did really like it, but there were definitely moments when I was watching it and I had to say to myself, I am deciding to like this because the, it is on some level a blockbuster and you could take the plot of, I don't know, uh, Independence Day and just map it over the damn thing. Like, the, like, a lot of the things that I don't like in other movies are in this. I just happen to like the way it's done here. So I guess my question for you is, g given the fact that this is a blockbuster and we've had so many problems with them in the past, uh, what what's the secret sauce? Is it that attention to detail, or do you think there's something more going on here that makes it richer? Well, first of all, Pete, Independence Day is a fantastic movie. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> one day, and maybe we'll have to wait until next summer uh, for Fourth of July, but one day we'll do Independence Day on this show, and I'll, I'll show you how wrong you are. Um, but no, you're, you're totally right at the level of 
The plot here is on rails. It is exceedingly conventional. And as you said, you could take various blockbuster plots and either sort of pastiche them together to make this. Or just you said, like, Independence Day is actually quite a good analog. Like, very similar plot beats about, like, you know, reviving the old pilot and all of this shit that happens in uh, and putting oh, and putting your commander in the vehicle, like putting the president in the airplane in Independence Day. Yeah. yeah and I, aliens that are locusts. Yeah, and I mean, and again, like as we know from reading a bunch of old sci-fi in the show, like that's you know there is nothing interesting about saying okay, these are colonist aliens. The only, I guess that there are like two things that are a little bit like outside of like straight down the middle of convention with the aliens in this thing, which is one is that they're extra dimensional other than extraterrestrial, which again is not they didn't invent that idea, but it's like a little off kilter, and then just that they invent these Japanese style kaiju's to attack that aren't representative of their race rather than using like military, you know, high tech or whatever they, they create uh, monsters. But yeah, I mean, again, I'm not giving too many points for that. That's all just, that just all is sort of there to answer your question about what is going on at a deeper level. I don't think anything's going on at the deeper level. I think this is a triumph of filmmaking that admits its own superficiality. And I don't quite mean that in the way that I would mean it about something like flash Gordon, which is a much different kind of movie where I can say, Oh, it's aware of how pulpy it is. Like, that is perhaps true in a sense of Pacific Rim, but I guess what I mean is it's a film that is sort of gleefully invested in surfaces. Like, this is a movie that is about giant mech suits fighting monsters. It is about those cool visuals. That is the subject of the movie. There is no, there is precious little thematic content here. You could talk a little bit about, like, overcoming past trauma in there. You could talk about, I don't know camaraderie but like again we're sort of grasping at vague straws that emerge from this really conventional plot so really i think this is a celebration of well done superficiality in filmmaking which is i think one way to succeed with a summer blockbuster that's what i see in it makes sense yeah it's i mean fundamentally what like i can talk about this at an analytical level but uh but when i really get to the root of what's going on i watched this and i enjoyed it and if you made me sit down and watch Armageddon, like I could draw all sorts of parallels, but I just don't enjoy the damn thing, you know. And, you don't enjoy- and oh yeah, right. I, you're going after me, okay? Like, name a science fiction blockbuster that you didn't like, and I could use that as the basis of comparison because, like, they map over each other so well. It's scary. Oh, I mean, I'm not that wedded to Armageddon. I do think Independence Day is actually a very strong movie in a lot of important ways. Um, Things that I didn't like would be the more recent ones that try very hard and don't like think they have something to say and don't really like Prometheus, um, which to be fair is a lovely movie in a lot of ways. Like I think the, I think the visuals in that one succeed. I think it was just sort of this cryptic mess that really wanted to be interesting and ultimately wasn't. And also like so much of what makes Alien and Aliens hum along as movies especially alien the, the first one is this sense of of mystery and how little the human characters know about their enemy and so trying to create a whole story about the the bat the mythos and the lore um for these sort of th- these aliens is not that interesting to me anyway that's a tangent it, about prometheus which one day we may do go ahead yeah well i was going to say it has a star wars problem you have this delightful mystery that's the center of the thing and then people show up later and do prequels to try and explain it and the explanation doesn't satisfy yeah i think that's actually a really rich vein of analysis 
for fantasy and sci-fi is how often do things operate by setting up really tantalizing mysteries that they want to unspool often over a long series of books or films or whatever. And the unspooling that, that like they do promise there is some sort of core that you're going to get down to by looking at like one of the, like a Tootsie pop. Um, Yeah. And, and of course the core is deeply unsatisfying and we could go on a tangent about, you know, Derrida or Lacan and all of the sort of, you know, post-war theoretical reasons why it's unsatisfying to resolve the mystery. But I think this is a serious problem that crops up in sci-fi and fantasy. You mentioned Star Wars. I also think about Game of Thrones, that Game of Thrones had this wonderful narrative engine that ran by teasing us with this incredible depth of mystery and then their attempts to resolve it satisfied exactly no one. And now we're sitting here being like, I don't think George R.R. Martin has necessarily a better resolution because if he did, maybe he would have written something in the last 20 years. But... (laughs) I, honestly, if I were in the position he was, I'd say screw the fans. I wouldn't have published anything either. He got the check. Yeah, this may disappoint some of our listeners, but I definitely, I, I can't bring myself to get mad at George R. R. Martin. I find the whole thing very funny. I find it funny just because I haven't read, I've only read the first book, so I don't have the emotional investment in him finishing them. And I know it's going to piss some people off. Please don't unsubscribe from Patreon for, just because I said that. But, um, you know, one day we'll d- dive deeper into GRRM. Um, where am I going with this? Yeah, I think that, that like that there's there's probably a lot to be said about like sort of the deep, you know, principles of storytelling or of how we respond psychologically to stories about when you set up elaborate mysteries and it's inevitably unsatisfying to resolve them. But, you know, I think that actually gets to something really important about Pacific Rim, which is that Pacific Rim does not care at all about mystery. There is a mystery animating the story, which is humans have been trying to defeat these enemies for a very long time. They were able to build mech suits that could fight the kaiju and then the kaiju got bigger and they weren't able to fight them as well. And so there's a whole, you know, there's a, there's a race to kind of understand this enemy better and then blow up their interdimensional portal. Um, And that plays out throughout the course of the movie, but like, there's no, I don't think there's really a sense that that's going, that elucidating that mystery is not going to take us to some like, higher plane of capital T truth or of greater awareness of our own existence. It's it's like, no, we've got to drop a nuke into this this vortex and we just need to know how to do it. Like it's just a science it's fundamentally a science and tactics problem. Um so I think that again, Pacific Rim wins on that count by by understanding what is and isn't interesting here. What is interesting to the movie, what the movie's interested in, what we're interested in, is seeing these gorgeous fights. And then having having a sort of narrative framework that allows us to care about the characters who are involved. And that is it. So, uh, I'm thinking of a country. What country am I thinking of right now, Connor? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Maybe Serbia, because it's one of the few that Americans can go to right now. <laughs> oh, actually, <laughs> Belize. No, okay. When, when, when you're watching this film, is there is is there a, a a history of filmmaking and of television and of of animation that informs this movie? Yeah, I mean, it's been said. I think that depending on how people feel about this movie, they either say that it's sort of a love letter to the Japanese kaiju tradition, and also to a lot of uh, mech storytelling, like Gundam. Yeah. Because it's both, it's kaijus and mechs, and we we learn that on the first screen of this movie before we get in the actual story that they define kaiju and they define Jaeger, which is just the big mech suit. <laughs> 
And, and a, a wonderful patron and guest of our show. Yes. <laughs> I know, folks. We, we do this on kind of short notice. We wanted to have Carlo Yeager Rodriguez back on to discuss this. Sadly, um, we were unable to obtain his services for this one. But shout out to you, Carlo. You spell Jaeger the right way. <laughs> yes. Well, and, I mean, he, he he's currently guarding the Miracle Mile in Hong Kong. So we're unable to, uh, you know, pull him away from his uh, patrol. Exactly. Carlo only claimed to have left the Navy. He's now part of the Navy's secret mech suit program. That's what he actually does. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, there's a lot of different traditions of post-war Japanese storytelling wrapped up in this movie. And if you don't like it, you could say, okay, this, you could say this is a pale imitation or a bastardization of kaijus or of mechs. Um, that it's like a, a worse version of different kinds of anime for American audiences. I, here's what I have to say. I don't know enough about any of that sort of post-war Japanese narrative art to have a strong opinion. I'm sure many listeners to this show do, so don't think that I'm dismissing your interest because I actually would like to watch a lot more anime and learn about it. But like, I, I just know vaguely that's what's going on here. I don't have strong opinions. I have to defer to you on this, Pete. Okay, well, I... Implying I'm an expert is one incorrect and two will probably make Leslie mad, who is who's hopefully listening. But I do. I think there's a direction we can go with this where you are a little more informed, and that is where where pre World War II uh, Japan led into this stuff. Because I think at least for the mechs, I don't really know about the the kaiju. I think there's a history of things going on in Japan that makes the mech suits make a little more sense. And, and you, you're you at least a student of of uh, samurai films and that sort of thing, so you can give this the smell test. And so, have you ever seen Karakuris? I have not. Okay, so a Karakuri is... I, I mean, it's basically like a very primitive robot. And uh, in in Japan, they've been making them for about 500 years. And the idea is like you have a you have a, a bamboo doll and you fill it with strings and you wind it up and it can drink tea or it can do all these things. There's, like there's always been sort of a fascination with uh, I don't want to say robotics, but that sort of uh, uh, mechanical Turk, if you will. Yeah, uh, me- me- mechan- mechanizing human movements, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the so you've got that piece of it, and then like mechs aren't robots fundamentally they are suits of armor and the the militaristic tradition of japan is very centered around the idea of of armored dudes using their skill and practice to kick the shit out of the enemy and so i can sort of see like the love of technology with with the attraction to that historical uh militarism leading to the idea of a mech suit with a samurai in it is that Am I talking out of my butt? Yes, but like, what do you think? I mean, in the most, I think in the most literal sense, you're right about sort of the suit of armor, and I, I at least know that, you know, I don't know the history of being interested in what we call now call robotics in Japan. I know that Japan continues to be sort of a glo- has always been a global leader in robotic technology, and that there does seem to be um, something there. I think with the what I would say if I were to take a samurai angle on this movie would be and this is this is perhaps getting off too easy because samurai stories influence so many kinds of martial stories um i really don't it's very difficult after world war 2 
in the shadow of Kurosawa, who, of course, you know, strongly influenced Westerns and was strongly influenced by Westerns. So there was a kind of a recursive thing going on. But like after Kurosawa in particular, it's very difficult to tell like a straightforward cinematic martial story, a warrior story um, without drawing a little bit on that tradition, whether consciously or not. And I think in this case, one of the tensions that always exists in samurai, usually exists in samurai stories is the tension between the lone, isolated, often laconic, often deeply wounded um, ronin or just a lone warrior of some kind wandering around and Building any kind of... Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, so there's a, <laughs> a Raleigh Beckett uh, played by Charlie Hunnam. Yeah, he has this sort of Ronin moment. But that's kind of the point I'm building towards, which is that, like, the, 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 the push and pull there is between the Ronin and what the Ronin might choose to be loyal to in the absence of their original master, right? Um, and that dynamic's on display here because, like, Charlie Hunnam, when his brother is killed in the first big mech fight we see outside of Anchorage in the water really it's a beautiful fight and also when they i think my my favorite scene visually is when his giant jaeger collapses on the snowy beach in alaska and he sort of falls out of the cockpit that's just like when i talk about this movie sort of standing and falling pun i guess pun intended in this case on its beauty on its it's just it's intensive interest in its own surfaces that's the kind of thing i mean there's no like deeper resonance or complexity to this scene where it's just like, and then the giant Jaeger comes out of the fog and collapses on the snowy beach. What is happening there is purely visual and perhaps auditory, but it's mostly just visual. But anyway, that's, that's the start of his disillusionment, which leads him to become sort of a wandering former warrior and, and work in a moody way on this seawall that everyone should know is not going to work. That's one of the funniest parts of this movie. Like, how could you not know that your concrete and steel wall is not going to work? Yeah. But uh, anyway, you know, so there's there's a, there's a constant push and pull between like how much structure will he accept? How much hierarchy will he accept? Whose orders will he take? And I think like that's that's a dynamic that I, you know, is, is beautifully on display in stories like Yojimbo by Kurosawa or Seven Samurai by Kurosawa. And it's mirrored here. And of course, again, it's that permeates martial storytelling ever since Kurosawa. But it's definitely here in, in an interesting way. And I think that kind of the seamlessness which with the which uh, which with the, with which excuse me, the characters resolve those tensions. Like if you wanted to point out ways where Pacific Rim is letting itself get off easy, you would say like it is just a little bit too cut and dry and a little too formulaic where it's like. Raleigh experiences this trauma and loss. He loses heart. You know, Stacker Pentecost comes and finds him. It turns out he's still the greatest fighter. And he's able to also help Mako, who becomes his co-pilot, you know, overcome her trauma. And then they kick ass together. Like, you can say that that might, you know, maybe that's a little bit too... Again, it's on rails. It's immensely formulaic and familiar. Um, Is that... Somewhere in that progression, could the story have actually found some more complexity? Like... Could the realm these Jaeger pilots are existing in, I should call them Rangers, which that's their name for themselves. Could it be more complex than just, okay, the politicians are going to screw us over. But in the meantime, we're going to be fine because we have our base and we have our Jaeger pilots and like, let's rock and roll and fight the monsters. Like, yeah, that could all have been more complicated, but the movie isn't interested in any of that. So I've been rambling for a long time here, Pete. Did I answer your question? Yeah, you did. I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's one of those questions that really doesn't have a reliable endpoint, so I, I appreciate you exploring it because, I mean, without without going 
going to a great deal of historical study of of Japanese film and literature, I sort of feel like we're always going to be scratching at the edge of this. But I, I think I I think what you said is right here. So I hate the term ranger, by the way, because they don't range. They go right after the lizard and then come back. Yeah, there's a reason that we organically call them Jaeger pilots, because that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think to expand a little bit and ramble a little bit more, um, I think that I wish I knew the history better because I feel like they're post-war. And again, I'm going to assign a lot of this to Kurosawa, but I'm, you know, I'm sure he's going to get from somewhere. And it's, it's reflected also in Yukio Mishima, by the way, one of my favorite writers who is Japanese and also post-war and was really interested in samurai. But the question is like in a sort of confusing, heartbreaking world where your sense of structure has been ripped away from you for whatever reason. And you, in losing your sense of your structures, you lose your identity to an extent, but, but you are still a warrior who has this sort of solo integrity and you can live by your wits and by your sword and wander around and you don't, you think you don't need anyone to make the sort of central dramatic question, what is that person going to care about? And thus in caring, what's, what new structures will they adopt? I don't know that that was sort of a totally new thing after World War II. I do think that like as we pass, you know, into sort of the uncertainties and the secularization and the technological modernity or post-modernity after World War II, that all starts to make a lot more sense because, you know, you can't it's harder and harder to just say, "Yes, I have like this immense structure of my religion. I have this immense structure of this of the feudal aristocracy, I have this immense structure of the traditional family, when that's all in upheaval, you know, one way to romanticize those tensions in yourself is to say, ah, well, I'm just going to be a lone swordsman. And like, again, a lot of the stuff we talk about, like cyberpunk is, is you know, cyberpunk is very influenced by that too. It's like, you're the lone swordsman. I'm a good lone swordsman. I just want to survive as a lone swordsman, but someone's going to make me care about some shit, right? Um, mm-hmm. And if you're, if you're Yojimbo, if you're in Yojimbo and you're, um, your son Sanjuro, the character in Yojimbo, played by Mafune, like you're gonna end up caring just briefly about this young couple, and you're gonna have to end up taking a lot of gangster ass just because of that. Anyway, I'm rambling again, but I think that that's all. I, I, to me, the or, the ur source of that is the samurai, the Kurosawa samurai movies, and then I think it radiates out, radiates out from there. And like, I don't know how much Del Toro and um, I think he had at least one co-writer on this. I don't know how much they thought about Kurosawa. But probably a little bit, just because like it's hard to do this kind of thing without thinking about Kurosawa. So anyway. sure. Well, and I mean, I think even if they weren't thinking about Kurosawa, which is something I find difficult to accept, they were th- certainly thinking about uh, other projects where people were thinking about Kurosawa. I mean, it's a it's a it's it's a it's a line of succession. Yeah, absolutely. So then, this is my chance to ask you. You said you're not an expert on anime, but I mean, you have watched some anime, right, Pete? Yeah, yeah. Particularly since the quarantine. <laughs> uh, right. I know that Leslie was getting you into that. Have you, like, have you been exposed to much like mech stuff? Because I really haven't. Oh, uh, I've some. It's not really like I, I've been trying to get into the various uh, Gundam. Uh, properties, which, I mean, if you haven't watched them or if you aren't familiar with them, just think people in robot suits and you're there. Um, I, it's, I'm trying to be careful because I don't want to alienate our audience. I, 
the spectacle of seeing two robots beat the crap out of each other or two guys in big armored suits beat the crap out of each other uh, always messes with my suspension of disbelief. Because at a root level, I know that the reason we're doing that is because we don't want to be left out of the technological change. Like, fundamentally, if you can build a machine that big and send it out to kick ass, you don't need a person in it. And that haunts me when I watch this sort of thing. That's a really interesting take. I would never have that thought about mecha anime, which, of course, as we should say, is its own established genre. Um mm-hmm. Again, I haven't seen any of it, but I mean, mecha anime or other like sort of these mech stories. I mean, yeah, that's you could say that about um, and this gets addressed over and over again in sci fi, right? Like where you have human pilots in just incredibly advanced craft of all kinds. It's not just the mecha stuff. So I guess part of my question would be, why does it bother you more with mechas? Because they are humanoid yeah, I mean, like, when you're dealing with something like like a spaceship, I can sort of move my head out of it. But when you're looking at a, a, a robot with a person in it, and the robot is shaped like a person, it's just, it's just so obvious what's going on. It's like, you know, p- people, people want to be an important part of this, this, this power, this future age, this technology, and y- you're not gonna be. I, okay. That's really interesting to me. I have so many takes here. One is that, as you know, I'm really skeptical of strong AI. I see no reason to believe just at sort of a basic conceptual level that human beings have the ability to invent an actual consciousness. We can invent really sophisticated software, but we don't even know what consciousness is. So I don't know how we'd model it. Yeah. Um, Honestly, I don't. I don't know that you'd want something that's conscious. Like you, you'd what you'd want to program in a set of fighting moves and a series of like. If this happens, do this. Like, personally, making a huge robot that can think sounds like a terrible idea to me. But, like, you could make it kick the shit out of a lizard. Yeah, totally. And, I, and of course, there is a lot of discussion, including among very serious philosophers, but just all over. Anywhere people are having, like, serious discussions about the future, there are discussions of killer robots. What you're describing of, like, autonomous weaponry. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what, what decision-making, exactly what, you're ta- what you just mentioned, which is, what decisions would you allow a weapon to make without deferring to a human user? And on the current battlefield, as far as we know, as civilians with no security clearance, there really isn't isn't technology that's like that out there. Like drones obviously don't have a pilot on board, but they are, the decision makers are still humans operating them in real time as if it were like a typical fighter bomber or something like that. Um, Yep. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there will there will definitely be autonomous weapons deployed with or without strong AI, um, no question. And I mean, you could make an argument, for instance, that like certain kinds of missiles that don't need. I mean, I guess I'll trip on my own words here and say certain kinds of things that like once they're fired make rudimentary decisions. I guess already have a degree of autonomy. But um, anyway, I the, the, it's. I, I don't want to tease you too much here, but I will say it's very Pete of you to just say like, "Ah, oh, you're just not going to be part of it." Uh, <laughs> where you're, well, you're... <laughs> I, I I hear you. Like, I I'm not I'm not saying despair necessarily, but I'm just thinking that like when you're building a huge machine, like quick reaction time is your advantage, right? And like if you if you want a machine to make a move in a in a two millionth of a second, like you don't want to have a guy with a joystick. You know, or well, or, uh, or a guy with a wire to his brain, even. 
That's why I was gonna say that's why the that's why the Rangers are nearly linked, Pete. Did you watch the movie? Come <laughs> on, this is canon, Pete. No, I mean I get, I get what you're saying. It doesn't it doesn't fill me with any kind of alienation. Like I, I suspect we'll be putting pilots into weapons of war for a very, for the rest of my lifetime, certainly, and very very far into the future. Um, you know, to to sort of specifically imagine how a mech suit would work. Very interesting question. And you're right. I mean the the. If there, there are only a few overriding prerogatives of narrative, generally speaking, and one of those is you have to have something that could be described as a character, be it human or not. And so you have to put the humans in the into the mech to make us give a shit about the mech. Or you could make the mech have, you know, feelings and personhood, and that could work too. Yeah, and then you've got the Iron Giant. I, I'm not even making fun. I agree. Like, that's that's your other option. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that conceit. I will say that, like... I again, I haven't watched Gundam. There are a lot of people who think, um, uh, what's it called, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm sorry if it's Evangelion. Yeah. I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but a lot of people think that one is really phenomenal. And that's also a mecca. Again, I I apologize to everyone. I haven't seen it. I would like to see it because like, there are a lot of people that I know on Twitter who are really into it. Who I think you know they see a lot of interesting complexities in that one. Um, supposedly, it's good on the subject of imperialism and and that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, there's some good stuff out there in this genre that you and I are not as, as qualified to comment on. I also don't know as much about kaiju stories. Like, I feel like I'm dropping the ball here just because Pacific Rim, the best I've got for people is to say, like, you can fit it into this, like, post-Kurosawa tradition of martial films. And I, you know, the kaiju, of course, is, is, is interesting in a much different way because that comes out of, that's also post-war Japan very concretely. And it's all about, um... It's all about these things that emerge to destroy and threaten in kind of an incomprehensible way. And, of course, it's about nuclear weapons, right? Right. Um, and, again, I, I apologize to anyone who knows a little bit way more of this than we do because I just am not an expert. Sorry that the phone's ringing in the background. Um, so. <laughs> I'm so happy that happened, dude. That's awesome. It's even an old school answering machine. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm at my parents' house and they actually ha- they have a landline, which, you know, once I'm in my, probably this is the last episode that I'll record uh, in their place for a while. So anyway, those things will be gone. But where was I? They just like, there is so much going on here. And I think that it's an interesting exercise in taking an incredibly diverse range of influences and then saying, all right, rather than doing this incredible inversion or subversion of the kaiju genre, or this incredible subversion or inversion of the mecha genre, or whatever the case may be, I don't think that Del Toro set out to do any of that. I really think this is just, what can I take from those genres that will allow me to make this very, to make what is superficial in a good way? Like... Superficial is usually used as a derogatory term now. I think that's it's kind of like a very YouTube criticism kind of thing because it's like to YouTube people, uh, not being superficial means like God. I'm trying to think of a really great stupid example here. Um, like if <laughs> help me out here, Pete. What's something stupid from like Star Wars or something that people, that people on YouTube think is deep? Um, I, I oh. Yeah, I, you know, I honestly, I, 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 I strive very hard not to listen to that. No, bullshit, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm like casting it bad here, but I guess my point is like, in this case, for me, superficial is a compliment because like film can work as a surface medium, and the subject of the film can be that like 
things look good and we're interested in the thing that's happening and we're interested in that it looks good. And that look. like that can work. And I think like, you know, so again, like superficial stuff on like, I guess my the easiest like YouTube thing would be like, you know, Darth Vader being Luke's father or whatever. That's like that's deep. And like, no, I don't think it's actually deep in any meaningful sense. But I guess my point is people that use superficial as this terrible insult. No, I mean, I think this is like yeah. this is quite a surface film. And to me, that's high praise. I think that like if you one of the, the joys of this medium is you can do that. I think it's actually quite hard to do in a book. Like I've been called out in in my writing for like having too much of an interest in surfaces and not wanting to go deeper, which is difficult to do in the novel form because so much of the novel form is about like accessing an interiority of characters and sort of finding the thoughts and feelings motivating the action. I really think that like, again, to me, this is a movie that is just about fighting these world ending monsters um, with these mech suits. But I think before, I think before we like leave it at that, we might want to discuss a little bit what else it might hypothetically be about, but you wanted to say something, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, if you want, if you're a person who has sat down and said every piece of of literature, of art, needs to have this underlying depth that, that, that it, uh, something can't ever be about itself, you may be a wonderful person, you may even be my friend, but you are insufferable. I mean, like, fundamentally, sometimes you just have to enjoy something. And this is a movie about, like, robots fighting huge monsters and, and explosions. And, like, trying to make that about, uh, I don't know, the, the, the debate over free silver or what it means to be a man. Like, stop it. Just stop. There, that's my take. That's that's good. I think the, the official pod side picnic take is, shh. Let people enjoy things. <laughs> All right, fine. <laughs> I love torturing people like that by using Twitter memes. We've already we've already established this is a dudes rock podcast, which drives them insane. And yep. now it's a shit let people enjoy things podcast. But I actually think that to broaden that out a little bit, and I wrote about this in my newsletter, which if you haven't signed up for my newsletter yet, connorosother.substack.com, go sign up for it right now and imagine me winking at you as part of my sales pitch. With that out of the way, um, I wrote about this and I think that like what I'm kind of getting at also is like this feels both this movie feels both very fresh in 2020 and that it looks very good in an era when CGI tends to age poorly but it also feels it, it also feels archaic in a very good way which is that it is not trying to crowbar in whatever the capital I capital I guess both capital I's important issues are of the moment and yeah. I find that to be a virtue. And I know that I, I risk kind of sounding like a gamer gator when I say that, like keep politics out of my movies. That's not what I mean. I obviously, I mean, I'm writing a, a novel about imperialism right now. Clearly I'm interested in putting politics into things such as that means anything. And you know, everything is political, blah, blah, blah. But the yeah. key point here is like, this is not a movie that is trying to crowbar in these like cutscene moments where it can be like, okay, Hey guys, check it out. Pacific Rim is a feminist movie. Check it out. You know, Pacific Rim cares about this, that, or the other issue. And it's like, it's great when movies do that well, and those important issues are important. But if you don't care about the issue and you're just doing it cynically, which happens a lot these days, there's no virtue in 
in uh oh i'm gonna say virtue signaling i hate that term no it's not it's not even what i mean it really is just like if you're not interested in doing the heavy lifting of saying something interesting about these important issues then don't don't you know, don't do it yeah. yeah that's all well i mean i i want a cinematographic uh, a film universe i guess in, in which you could have a movie like children of men and a movie like ultraviolet like, they both serve different needs for me, and that's fine. And if you haven't seen Ultraviolet, put it on the list, buddy. I have not seen Ultraviolet, so it's going on the list, I guess. <laughs> yes. Oh, just just the best stupid, man. Uh, awesome. And like you said, I mean, Children of Men is a great example. Like, that is a commercially successful movie that has, I think, only become more popular since it came out almost 15 years ago. And... Yeah, I mean, it's obviously laden with politics and important issues, and that's great because that movie can handle what it's doing, and it has a few things to say. Oh, um, yeah, it's it's checks clear. I mean, like, if this movie tried to be about uh, just about anything important, that check wouldn't clear. Yeah, I, I think that's correct. I think that Pacific Rim, like, like a lot of, I mean... One of my deep theories is that stories are more often about stories than people want to let on. And that's been the case for a very, very long time. Like, people have heard me say this before, but when I was studying Chaucer in the spring, one of the things that really leaps out to me is how much of Chaucer is him playing these meta-level games and telling stories about other stories. Not just referencing them or being inspired by them, but sort of playing with their structure, riffing on them, and commenting less like directly on the world whatever that may mean and commenting more on just the other stories about the world and i just feel like that that way of reading things it, we need to bring that back um a little more strongly because there's so much of a, there's so much pressure now to make every piece of narrative art about these important keystone issues that are in the news at the moment and like first of all Whatever's in the news at the moment may not have been in the news, you know, five or six years earlier when this was being initially written, right? So, like, there's there are right. so many um, awkward disconnects that happen when we try to do that. But I just think the point being, like, I, I really feel like what is going on here is a an agglomeration and a love letter to a bunch of different genres and a bunch of different narrative traditions. And it's pulled off with aplomb precisely because it's not trying to be much deeper than that. To me, this is a story that is on the one hand about fighting monsters and in mech suits and it's also a story about all of the cool stories that led up to it and like that's an a that's a fantastic thing to be yeah absolutely i i have uh my closing question for you connor mm -hmm. what is your favorite dumbass movie oh man there's the, the thing with that is there are so many definitions of dumbass right i yeah. think my favorite movie that is widely considered cheesy and like is is in critical circles considered a tolerable film at best would be Legends of the Fall. I love Legends of the Fall. I think it's great. I think it's Rotten Tomato score is like 60 something and if you bring it up to serious film people they'll laugh at you because like it's considered to be one of those very corny 90s movies which it is but it's sure. also like I mean Legends of the, first of all, Legends of the Fall is way better than most of the blockbusters now, which we keep saying on the show because sadly it's true. But yeah, I mean, I don't. I think it's unfair to Legends of the Fall to say it's a dumbass movie because I think it's a quite a good movie based on a very strong novella by a serious writer, that being Jim Harrison. 
But also, like, yeah, is it corny? Yes. Is it just sort of like this? Is it melodramatic? Absolutely. Is it sort of boldly rendered in, in a way that can only be done by, you know, Hollywood studios that are hamming it up? Absolutely. And yet I love oh, it. Oh, yeah. Brad so, Pitt in World War One running around with a tomahawk? What more could you ask for? Yeah, exactly. So wait, what's your favorite dumbass movie? Oh, definitely Heavy Metal. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one we've been meaning to do on here for a while, and it's inevitable that we'll do it. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't it's it's so foundational it's foundational. Uh it's it's a it's a baseline of where the uh where 80s science fiction was trying to go and ultimately didn't go and I I on that basis I'd like to talk about it sometime. No rush. It's interesting how many like of the stories we deal with sort of cluster around in the span from like 76 to 84 or so, which is like Yeah. It's a moment of really interesting changes in sort of like the actual, the literal structure of our society because that's the that's the turn towards neoliberalism. It's also okay. when you were a kid and reading like two books a day. Um. <laughs> I, I always fear that that's what's going on is that we're actually taking a tour of my own head rather than what's going on in the world. But I mean, if people are enjoying it, I guess I can live with that. Well, actually, that's very interesting because, like, something you said right now, I think is very true, which is that a lot of the things we touch on that moment, they they often represent paths not taken, and some are paths taken. Like Neuromancer and Blade Runner are paths taken, at least in a sense. Not to say that a lot that everything that came after that was inspired by Blade Runner was anywhere near as good, but just that founding of that cyberpunk aesthetic. We've discussed how influential that is. But then you have like Buckaroo Banzai, which is trying to reinvent this sort of radio play storytelling and which i love as a total goofball um b movie and i mm-hmm. you know I, I, i'm a huge fan of buckaroo bonsai but it's like it is very much the path not taken along with flash gordon those are two movies i think can be compared where it's like we could have just leaned back into the silliness of what sci-fi movies can be but in, you know instead we got we got alien and blade runner and then a bunch of much paler imitators for the most part going into the future but uh yeah yeah no i i completely agree with that and it's one of the the nice things about pacific rim is it is a different path if not like maybe not the most insightful path but who cares it's 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 a fun romp in a way that that neuromancer or even blade runner could never be because they're they're shackled by their own meaning yeah i mean pacific rim is a path that more blockbusters should seek to take because it's a blockbuster that is it's essentially about as we said it's about what it's about but it's also about the things that make blockbusters fun (laughs) like it's about all the influences that pour into the contemporary blockbuster to make it what it is and it understands that better than the vast majority of these movies um so i yeah that it's a path that should be taken more often before we end this though i want to ask you who's your favorite character in pacific rim um, let's see. I think Mako. Um, I I I found her going from the the be, being terrified of the monsters to to being a key part of fighting it. I I found that that to be an interesting character arc. I also was immediately amused when she came on screen and I realized she had knives chows from uh uh scott pilgrim versus the world had that haircut and like 
I was calling her knives in my head for about a quarter of the movie before I managed to cure, cure myself of it. But I, I like the character. How about you? Well, I was probably going to say Mako. Um, I will go a little bit against the grain here and say, I think I'll, I've heard people on Twitter say to me that they thought Idris Elba was wasted in this. I actually think that uh, Marshall Stacker Pentecost is a pretty cool character um, in that he, you know, he tries his best to, as he, as he puts, be a fixed point for the Jaeger pilots in the midst of chaos and upheaval. And also is, it turns out the loving surrogate father of, or adopted father, I should say of Mako. And then of course, bravely sacrifices himself at the end. That's a spoiler, but I assume most of you've seen the movie. Um, I like him a lot as a character. I also want to ask you before we, before we sign off, what's your favorite scene? Huh? Um, I think my favorite scene was when, uh, when the guy from Always Sunny and the 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 other scientists plug themselves into that brain and have that interaction, I just uh, I like that development. Yeah, that's a good pick. Um, they're they're a really fun pair and an example of the way this movie has these little touches it doesn't need to have, but that adds that add quite a bit to just how fun it is and how like yes. well well fleshed out the world is. For me, it's either the Anchorage snowy beach scene that I already discussed or. I like the ending where you have like the life raft that's spewing green dye. I love that because it sort of mirrors the like luminescent green blood that we've seen from these monsters this whole time. And there's this sort of like really interesting melding of the characters' vulnerability with their triumph um, that I just find really, you know, it sort of like gets to the heart of what I like about martial stories in general. So, yeah, I mean, this film is full of great touches. I feel like we talked about it in conceptual terms a lot, but, like, it's just a, yeah. It's one that I feel like I could revisit and just attend to the details of the scenes over and over again. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Anything else you want to cover before we uh, send people on to their days? That's it. Thanks for listening to us, Gab, everyone. Have a good day, guys.